Good everyone. Uh, if you like, if you want to keep your Bibles open to Haggai two, and if you are the one who likes to take notes, keep your outlines open. And um, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to look into Haggai two. Let's pray. Uh, gracious God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Thank you for your word, and we pray that you would help us through your spirit to hear, understand, uh, love, and so that we can obey uh, for the glory of your name and for the glory of your Son. In his name we pray. Amen. Um, How many of you have seen the new uh, Cinderella movie? Wow. It's not much different from the first one, uh, but just more fancy, uh, glossy, and with a lot of glee factor. Um, How do I know? Because I've seen it, and I think it's okay for guys to see it, Uh, so stop judging me men out there. But if you have no idea what I'm talking about, don't worry. Um, Have a look at this trailer, and it kind of shows you the whole story. So have a look at this trailer. Um, feeling romantic? <laughs> Alright, it's time to come down from cloud nine. Um, but let's, let's think about it a little. Alright, let's think about it a little. You see, in the movie, Cinderella was taught by her mom to be kind and have courage when you meet trials of various kinds. Sounds cute, doesn't it? But the problem is, but the problem is that when one does hit tragedy and hard realities of life, the last thing we want is to be kind and have courage. When there is struggles, challenges, and pain at every corner, you know what I'm talking about. We all have experiences of pain. And all we can think about is how to get rid of that pain and how to find comfort in pain. It's not easy or natural to be kind and have courage when you face trials and struggles of various kinds. You need more than a piece of advice when you face trials. You need a massive ship to cross the big ocean, not a little tinny with a note that says, have a good trip, mate. You see, In the movie, Cinderella did not know the future. We do, because we know the story. But she didn't. Nor she had any promise about a fairy godmother or a prince charming from her mom. So it's not possible for her to have courage, strength, or character. Because she had nothing, nothing to hold on to. And that's why Cinderella is a fantasy. It's unreal. I'm sorry, it's true. But the fact, but the fact is Bible. It's Haggai. And in Haggai 2 today we're going to see that God gives glorious future promises to the struggling people in the land. To the people in pain and people who are facing trials of various kinds. Glorious future promises that they can hang on to. And what will these future promises give them? 
Well, let's have a look. Haggai 2, reading verses 1 and 2. On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through Haggai the prophet. Speak to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatel, governor of Judah, to the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and to the remnant of the people. This is the second time that Haggai speaks to the people, so God speaks through Haggai. Second time to the Jewish leaders and the rest of the people. Now for those who have no clue about Haggai or who weren't there last week, where I did a massive history lesson, um, let's just go back into the context and just think through where we are in the story. So Haggai was the first prophet speaking God's word to the people after it, who came back to the land after exile. And uh, what was exile? Exile was a no small deal. It was a huge blow to the Jews. People were deported. The city and the temple was destroyed. An absolute tragedy. And it seemed like the Jewish history, the nation Israel, had come to an end under the superpower Babylonians. Many years passed by. Cyrus came into uh, power, a Persian king. And he conquered the Babylonian Empire, and his empire, the Persian Empire, became the next superpower. The first thing he did when he came into power, he sent the Jews back to the land uh, to restore their religious practices so that they can go back to the land, build a temple, and worship their God. And however people get back to the land, they start working on the temple, but soon the project is abandoned. No more building of the temple. Why? Because of huge political, economical, and social problems. Two decades passed. The kingdom of Persia is now under a new king, Darius. The Jews have resettled in the land. They've built their own houses. But nothing was happening for the temple. And we saw last week in Haggai 1... That the building of the temple should have been the number one priority. A priority that trumps all. Why? Because the temple, the physical temple signified God's presence and God's promise. The place of God's glory, worship and covenant. The promise of God. So after Haggai's strong rebuke to these people, these people got the message And they fearfully obeyed God and started work on the temple with God's promise and God's power. That's Haggai 1, and that's where we are in history. So now you can hear the construction work going on. You can hear the cranes moving around. You can see the bricks and mortar everywhere and the people busy building the temple. But then, on 17th October, 520 BC, there was a problem. A problem that God addresses through Haggai. Please have a look at verse 3 in chapter 2. Verse 3. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Doesn't it seem like nothing to you? There has been some initial work done on the temple. People are gathered around it, looking at it, admiring it, 
talking about it. And you can hear people saying, good job, Jack. That's a fine structure. <laughs> Thanks, Bob. It was a good effort, eh? But some, mainly the older folks, who had the memories of the good old days, who had seen, touched, and worshipped in the first temple that was built under King Solomon, they were sad. And we get more details of their sadness in Ezra chapter 3, which talks about the same incident. So let's open to Ezra chapter 3. It's, it's after Kings and Chronicles, before Haggai. And if you have a black church Bible, I think it's page 420. Ezra chapter 3. So Ezra chapter 3, verses 10 to 12. When the builders had laid the foundation of the Lord's temple, the priests dressed in their robes and holding trumpets, and the Levites descended from Asap holding cymbals, took their positions to praise the Lord as King David of Israel had instructed. They sang with praise and thanksgiving to the Lord, for he is good, his faithful love to Israel endures forever. Then all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the Lord's house has been laid. But many of the older priests, Levites and family leaders who had seen the first temple wept loudly when they saw the foundation of this house. It was not a nostalgic feeling. Oh, those were the days. But these people were sad, disappointed, and discouraged. Why? Because the present temple that they saw was nothing compared to the former. Doesn't it seem like nothing to you? It's like zero, non-existent, when compared with the beauty, glory, and splendor of the of the former temple. But God says, do not lose hope. God says, do not lose hope. Please look at verses 4 and 5 in Haggai chapter 2. Even so, be strong, Zerubbabel. This is the Lord's declaration. Be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land. This is the Lord's declaration. Work, for I am with you, the declaration of the Lord of hosts. This is the promise I made to you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit is present among you. Don't be afraid. God says, be strong and have courage, all you people. Work, do not give up, I am with you. My spirit is with you, do not fear. In chapter 1, God had promised his presence and his power to his people. And again, he reassures this. He's not saying that rely on your strength, your own power, like the self-help gurus, you can do it. But God says, rely in me. I am with you. The great God, the creator of heaven and earth, the great king of heavenly armies is saying, I am with you. You see, it's easy to give up when the going gets tough. It's easy to take a hit when it does not hurt. 
But here these people were facing disappointment, discouragement and fear. But God says, don't you remember Egypt and my promise? Don't you remember Moses? It was I who single-handedly saved you from the powerful Egyptians. It was I who gave you this land flowing with milk and honey. It was I who fought your battles in this land. So don't you fear my child. Keep going. I am here. I've done great things and I will do great things. I am with you. My spirit is with you. So after giving some words of comfort, God now goes on to give them glorious promise for the future. And it's a promise about the temple. The reason they were sad, now God gives a promise about the temple. So please have a look at verses 6 to 9. For the Lord of hosts says this, Once more in a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I'll shake all the nations so that the treasures of all the nations will come and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver and the gold belong to me. This is the declaration of the Lord of hosts. The final glory of this house will be greater than the first, says the Lord of hosts. I will provide peace in this place. This is the declaration of the Lord of hosts. Sorry. Um, The first temple was built by Solomon and it was adorned with precious gold and silver. It was beautiful. More beautiful than Cinderella. Uh, But the Babylonians had burned it and they took all the precious gold and silver. And the returned exiles, the people who returned back to the land, they were short in resources. Their condition was not like Solomon. They were poor and miserable. So they could only build the temple with what they have and it wasn't good enough. And that's why people were sad. But God says, don't you worry. And you can hear uh, the song by Swedish House Mafia in the background. What is it? Don't you worry, don't you worry. (laughs) Heaven's got a plan for you. And what's the plan? The final glory of this temple. Alright, look at this. The final glory of this temple will be more better and more beautiful, and more awesome than the first. So they're looking at the temple, and they're sad. God is saying, the final glory of this temple is going to be more better, and more beautiful, and more awesome than the first. God will fill this temple with all the precious gold and silver that he would bring in from all the nations. It will be a universal event, because God will shake all the nations. He will shake them so bad, that all the precious things will fall out from the nations into the temple. And you can, you can imagine after this, the sad faces were turning happy. The disappointment was going away. There was kind of like a hope now. But this raises a question for us. But when so? When, when did this happen? When does it happen? And so if you, if you go later on and you can read in Ezra chapter 6 and 7, uh, where Darius, the king of Persia, and his later on descendant, Xerxes, they allow and help these Jewish people with money, gold and silver to finish the building of the temple. 
So Darius and, and the next king, Xerxes, they help the people with money, with gold, and everything they need so they can finish this temple. And this temple was built within five years, by 515 B.C. And later, later on, after many years, a, king came, a governor or a king came Herod, and he upgraded the temple. So it was really finished, and it was looking beautiful. And you can hear the beauty and the praise of this temple in the Gospels, in the New Testament, uh, where one of the disciples uh, in Mark chapter 13, he goes to Jesus and says, Jesus, or he says, Teacher, what massive stones, what impressive building. And so you see that this temple was built and it was beautiful again. But there was a problem. In AD 70, that physical temple was also destroyed by the Romans around AD 70. So the question remains, how will the final glory of this temple will be greater than the first? If that physical temple also got burned down and destroyed. Well, as we learned last week, the temple, the physical building made with bricks, wood and mortar, adorned with gold and silver, symbolizing God's presence and God's promise is no more a physical place, according to the New Testament, but a physical person, Jesus. And the temple is also us people who are joined to Jesus by faith. So the temple is Jesus and His people. So the temple is you and I connected to Jesus. So the temple is the church. Not the building, but the people. And this final glory of this temple is not reached by the physical structure or like things like gold and silver. The final glory is reached when God, the glorious King, the Creator and Savior of the world, comes visibly and resides with His precious people who are brought by the costly, the costly blood of Jesus. Please have a look at Revelation chapter 21. The most easiest book to find. It's the last book in the Bible. Revelations chapter 21. Verses 1 to 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea no longer existed. I also saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride, adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will no longer exist. Grief, crying and pain will exist no longer because the previous things have passed away. That's when the final glory of the temple will beat the glory of the first temple because of God's presence and 
pure and blameless people brought by the blood of Jesus' presence. That day, the final glory of the temple will be greater than the first. That day will be a glorious day. And there will be only one thing that day. And that is not worry, but glory, glory, and glory. Are you part of it? If not, then start believing and following Jesus. And if you're part of it, then rejoice. Because your name is written in heaven. Now back to Haggai. The people are encouraged, comforted, and reassured. Two months have passed by. And on 18 December, 520 BC, God now promises blessings to them. In verses 10 to 19. So if you have a look at verses 11 to 13, God reminds them about the law. He reminds them the law, that the meat set apart for sacrificial offering cannot make other things holy. But the unclean dead body can make things unclean when it comes in contact with anything. But why is God reminding them this? Why is he saying all this? Well, please have a look at verse 14. Then Haggai replied, So is this people, and so is this nation before me. This is the Lord's declaration, and so is every work of this people, of their hands, even what they offer, there is defiled. God is saying these people are unholy and unclean. Why? Because they were not giving God their number one priority. They were not building the temple. And no temple means no God. No God means no obedience. And no obedience means sin. And God makes them reflect back to that time. That time that was where the temple was not being built. Where God was not their priority. And so please look at verses 15 to 17. God says, Now reflect back from this day, before one stone was placed on another uh, in the Lord's temple. What state were you in? When someone came to grain a heap of 20 measures, it only amounted to 10. When one came to the wine press to dip 50 measures from the wet, it only amounted to 20. I struck you all the work of your hands with blight, mildew, and hail, but you didn't turn to me. God reminds them that they were unholy and unclean, drenched in sin, full of selfishness. Because they forgot God, so God forgot them and cursed all their work and labor of their hands. Because according to Deuteronomy 28, because according to the law, obedience meant blessing, but disobedience and sin meant curse. And that's why whatever these people touched, whatever they did, any kind of work, it ended up bad, very bad. Because you see, sin is dangerous. Sin is saying, no God, no God business. And no God means curse and judgment. But the good news is, the good news for us, the good news is that Jesus took that curse and judgment on our behalf 
for our sins. And he finished it through his death and resurrection. So that one who believes and follows Jesus has no judgment or curse. But that does not mean we go on sinning. Because sin is still dangerous. It's a disease that has consequences. It robs our joy. It makes us feel cold to God and cold to people. Sin is dangerous. Please don't entertain sin. Run, fight, pray. Sin is dangerous. And so God reminds the Jews of their sin. But he does not leave them there. Please have a look at verses 18 to 19. Consider carefully from this day forward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Consider it carefully. Is there still seed left in the granary? The vine, the fig, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have not yet produced. But from this day on, I will bless you. The people have turned to God. They've laid the foundation for the temple. God says, from now on, I will bless you. No more famine, starvation, or curse, but only blessing, a land flowing with milk and honey. So God has given them a promise about the temple. God has given a promise about the blessing, promise of blessing. So the final glory of this temple will be greater than the first, and a promise for the land and the people. And this brings us to a last promise, God's promise to Zerubbabel, in verses 20 to 23. Now you can imagine Zerubbabel is the Jewish leader, a descendant of King David, the great King David. He's standing on the side, leaning on the wall, and listening carefully to all the future promises. He could see his people, the priest, and everyone. He's just looking at them, listening carefully. And he can see everyone are are happy now, ready to party. But there's something that is bothering him. There was a question that was unanswered. And what was that? What about the messianic legacy? What about the promise to David? The promise that God made to the Davidic descendant. The promise about the Messiah. The promise about the king and his kingdom and God establishing his kingdom forever. You see, Zerubbabel would be looking at himself. He's like, I am a Davidic descendant. A Messiah, technically a king. But at present, I'm just a Persian appointed governor. An insignificant mini puppet under the hands of King Darius. What promise does God have for me? But God directly speaks to him through Haggai in verses 20 to 23. Please have a look. The word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and destroy the power of Gentile kingdoms. I will overturn chariots and their riders. Horses and their riders will fall, each by his brother's sword. On on that day, this is the declaration of the Lord of hosts. I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Sheatel, my servant. This is the Lord's declaration. And make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you. This is the declaration of the Lord of hosts. God says, I haven't forgotten my promise. I will turn the world and the kingdoms of this world upside down. No power or authority will stand before me. On that day, 
on that glorious day, God says, I'll take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, and make you like a signet ring. A signet ring meant authority. It was a ring used and worn by royal kings to seal and mark official documents. So what is God saying? God is saying he will establish the authority and kingship of Zerubbabel. The promise of Davidic descendant remains. The promise of the Messianic king and his kingdom remains. Zerubbabel, everything will be alright. And when was this fulfilled? For many years, and we hear this in Philippians, where one more descendant of David, the great Messiah, came into this world. Where Jesus is termed as God's servant, who is given the ultimate authority and kingship, in whose name every new should bow in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Haggai 1 and 2 ends over here. There was a problem. People were not obeying God by not giving Him a priority, by not building the temple. God says, get your act right. Get me right. People start obeying him. But life was hard. The temple wasn't good enough. And God said, wait, I've got some future promises for you. About the temple, for you and the land, and for your king. But what do we learn from Haggai today? What does it say to us? You know, I was talking to somebody about Cinderella this last week. She said she likes these kind of movies. Uh, these type of movies because it's got a happy ending. It makes her happy. Cinderella is a fantasy that charms our hearts. But the Bible has a better tale for us. It's got a better story for us. Not a fairy godmother, but God, the great God as a father, waiting to embrace us prodigals, waiting to take us home. Take dirty, wretched sinners into eternity forever. Why? Not because you and I have done anything. Because his son stood before us and took every punishment that you and I deserve. So what do we wait for? We wait for home that is called heaven. Sorry guys, Sydney is not our home. It's not mine though. But it's not our home. No fairy godmother, God the Father. We don't get beautiful crystal shoes, I'm sorry. But we get something better. We get a white garment. Again, washed from every dirty sin because of the blood of the Lamb. We get a garment that reflects the righteousness of Christ. You and I are going to stand pure, and blameless before God because of Christ. That's way better than a crystal shoe. No Prince Charming, sorry girls, but King Jesus. The groom waiting for his bride, the church, you and me. That's our future.
Not a fantasy, but a fact. And what do these future promises give us? Well, for Christians, it gives hope in despair. When life is hard, when you think everything is going wrong for you, you don't look at this present situation, but you look at the future promise from God in Christ. It gives you hope that you can hang on to when life is hard and everything is going against you. It gives us courage in fear when we don't know about the future, what's going to happen in future tomorrow, day after tomorrow, years down the line. It gives us courage because God knows the future and He is He's there for us. It gives us perseverance to keep going on. Christian life is not easy. If it's easy, come talk to me after this. Um, it gives us perseverance to keep going on. It gives us strength to keep fighting the good fight. Because soon it will be over. And so if we, ha- we have a set future, and by looking at that future, we need to keep fighting the good fight. It also tells us Christians not to be stupid. It tells us not to be stupid by building castles and treasures here. With all the eye gadgets, eye house, eye car, and eye money. Let's build God's church, the temple, the temple where you and I will be there forever. Why are we building a temple where we are not going to be there forever? Why is everything of our life surrounded in here and now and not for future? Please get excited for mission. Because the future is coming. Sydney, I've been in Sydney for a little while. Sydney needs radical Christians who look forward to the glory of God in heavens and not of the glory of self in the kingdom of Australia, the lucky country. And radical Christians look forward to future, look backwards at the cross and live the present life. With the cross and our Savior defining everything in our life. Church in the bank. Our glorious future is a fact. Let's not live in a fantasy. Shall we pray? Let's pray. Gracious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we are thankful that we know your Son because of your grace and your mercy. We pray that help us not to take it for granted, but look forward to the future, the inheritance we have received because of your Son, Jesus. Pray that you would grip our hearts so strong that when life is hard, we look forward to that hope. We pray that you would give us courage and strength to face every situation in our life and also help others. Father, pray that help us not to build treasures here. We are selfish, Father, and we need your Spirit to work in our hearts. Make us radical enough so that we look towards heaven and live in this earth. And Father, we pray that, yeah, we trust you would do this and not our our strength. Because, Father, you are with us through your Spirit forever. Pray this prayer in your Son's name. Amen.